Welcome back to another exciting episode of Mimosa Talk, where we talk all about the TV shows you crave while sipping on a lovely and refreshing mimosa. Cheers. We'll start off by going through the heaps of TV show news that's happening this week. Um, It involves some premiere dates for the mid-season, a bunch of reboot information, and some sad show cancellations. Good news for fans of NBC's Manifest and Good Girls, we have premiere dates for the 2020 mid-season. We waited long enough, right? Manifest, the supernatural, well, at least I think it's supernatural, The Supernatural Thriller is premiering January 6th in the 10-9 Central time slot, replacing Buff City Law. The first season of Manifest didn't draw in large audiences, probably because it was such a high-concept series, but there's been a lot of buzz around the second season and, you know, just us getting those much-needed answers. Our favorite rebellious lawbreakers, Beth, Annie, and Ruby, aka The Good Girls, premieres on Sunday, February 16th. There's a lot to look forward to with this premiere, uh, considering that major cliffhanger, but I don't want to spoil it in case some of you aren't caught up yet. Over on the CW, the network set premiere dates for a few highly anticipated shows that were saved for the mid-season lineup. Uh, The premiere of Riverdale's spinoff Katie Keene, starring Lucy Hale, will debut on Thursday, February 6th, alongside Legacies. It's odd that the series isn't going to be paired with Riverdale, as that would make sense in terms of audience retention. Um, Like, you're likely going to watch Katie Keene if you watch Riverdale and vice versa. Um, DC's Legends of Tomorrow is returning for its fifth season, Tuesday, January 21st. Roswell, New Mexico is moving to Mondays along with Supernatural for its second season on March 16th. So that's kind of a bummer that we have to wait till March, but you know, we're in the home stretch, guys. No confirmation has been given on the final season of the 100, but considering its history, it will likely appear on the summer schedule. A few finale dates have also been announced. The Good Place will air a 90-minute finale on Thursday, January 30th with special guest host Seth Meyers. The show will be dearly missed along with all of its ethical lessons, but at least they're ending on their terms and can tell the story that they've always wanted to. Many shows don't get that luxury. The CW is also saying goodbye to two of its shows, Arrow and Supernatural, and confirmed their finale dates. Um, Arrow will end things with a two-hour episode on Tuesday, January 28th. However, it's going to use the Jane the Virgin style formula, where the first hour is cast commentary about their time on the series, and the last remaining 60 minutes will be the final episode. But while saying goodbye to this series is sad, the DC Universe is going to be embracing a female-led spinoff starring Katie Cassidy, Juliana Harkavy, and Kat McNamara. It will premiere as a backdoor episode of Arrow later this season. Supernatural is getting a time slot change, um, so close towards the end as it moves to Mondays in March with a series finale airing Monday, May 18th. And finally, Joe Goldberg is back to, well, probably look through more front windows when the second season of You premieres. If no one else gives you a present this holiday season, just take comfort in knowing that Netflix always has your back. 
The second season returns on December 26th, which is a day after Christmas, making it the perfect bingeable choice. While I'm not going to go into detail on how much season one, um, how it ended and what cliffhangers there were, again, out of respect for those of you who haven't seen the show yet but plan to watch it, but the plot is moving from New York to LA, which is presumably where some um, someone from his past lives. There will also be a new object of his affection, Victoria Pedaretti, um, from The Haunting of Hill House, who is going to star as an aspiring chef named Quinn. It's unclear how her paths will cross with Joe, but honestly, we feel bad for her already. So there you have it. Uh, you on Netflix, December 26th. Then Manifest comes back on January 6th. DC's Legends of Tomorrow will be back on January 21st. Arrow's finale airs January 28th. The finale of The Good Place uh, is January 30th. Katie Keene drops on February 6th. Good Girls, uh, February 16th. Roswell, New Mexico, March 16th. And the Supernatural finale comes May 18th. So that's a lot of dates, a lot of TV. It's exciting, a little sad. Uh, so write that all down in your calendar so you don't miss anything. And we have to report a cancellation. ABC is not bringing back Fresh Off the Boat for a seventh season. Um, the network confirmed it will end the show with its current sixth season, airing an hour-long finale on February 21st. We couldn't be prouder of this game-changing show and the impact it has had on our cultural landscape, said Carrie Burke, president of ABC Entertainment. The success of Fresh Off the Boat has helped pave the way for inclusion throughout the industry. Adding, Constance Wu is one of the finest and funniest on television. We'll miss the Hung family and are eternally grateful for the incredibly heartfelt stories they have told these past six seasons. The kind words about Wu are definitely encouraging, especially after she voiced her displeasure with the show's renewal on social media. Sure, she clarified those comments saying that she was forced to give up another project because of the series renewal, but it did kind of sound a little bit like biting the hand that feeds you. However, fans will be happy to know that there is a potential spinoff in the works. An episode will introduce the characters that could evolve into their own show, currently titled Magic Motor Inn, which will focus on an Indian family whose daughter goes to school with Eddie. It also seems like Veronica Mars has solved her last case. TV Line reports that Hulu is not in discussion to renew the show for a fifth season. However, series creator Rob Thomas is he's not ruling out the prospect of bringing back the series in some form down the line. So, you know, this isn't goodbye. It's just goodbye for right now. Disney Plus just launched their new streaming service, and though there were some hiccups and glitches, it seems like everyone's been living through nostalgia this past week. I think I'm in the majority when I say I'm patiently waiting for the Lizzie McGuire reboot. 90s fans are all about Hilary Duff reprising this iconic role and cannot wait to see what Lizzie's up to as a 30-year-old gal. Duff is just as excited as fans are, and she said that it's been really fun to go through Lizzie's experiences since they differ so much from her own. She doesn't have kids, Hillary assured Us Weekly, telling the publication that, I think it's going to be a really good mix of giving everyone what they want from the show in the past and also a new fresh show and at her 30s, which looks completely different. 
She also added that I feel so connected to her obviously from the past, so it's been really fun to be a part of the whole creative process as well. She also gave credit to Sutton Foster for spearheading the show Younger. Quote unquote, I forgot what it's like to be the absolute star of a show when you're in every single scene and every single storyline. You don't have a free minute all day long. I thought I was busy with Kelsey, but this is a whole other level, but it is a dream come true. But here's where it gets truly juicy for Lizzie fans. Ethan Kraft is making a comeback and he might have a thing with our girl. The star hinted that her character, Lizzie's childhood crush, Ethan Kraft, will return in the reboot and our animated selves are freaking out. Uh, Duff said, he is hot. He's very hot. And I'm pretty sure there's going to be, there's going to be a thing. We need Duff to define the word thing ASAP. She's supposed to have a boyfriend and a good job in the reboot. So does that mean that the thing happens before she settled in New York, during, or after when things start to fall apart? Because as much as we don't want them to, it only makes sense from a storytelling perspective. Lizzie's strong suit was always about finding herself, learning lessons, and dusting herself off to become an Italian pop star. Seriously, can we just get a premiere date already? ABC's latest quest is all about getting revenge. The network is planning on reviving Revenge, the drama led by Emily Van Camp from 2011 to 2015. The series will reportedly be titled Revenge and will follow a young Latina immigrant in Malibu who wants to get revenge on a pharmaceutical dynasty that caused the murder of her biochemist mother, the destruction of her family, and a global epidemic. Terrible, but impressive. The connection to the original will come as she's going to be guided by an original fan favorite. The identity of this mystery character has yet to be revealed, but look, there aren't many options here and not many characters who fit the fan favorite mold. Emily Thorne is likely out of the picture as she's happy with Jack Porter, and he was never a a fan of revenge anyways. Victoria and Daniel Grayson were never fan favorites, which leaves us with digital tycoon Nolan as the assist. The reboot is already getting the blessing of Van Camp, who told TV Insider, quote, I can't say who, but they're bringing back a specific person, and I love that specific person. So it's exciting. Adding that she would absolutely watch the reboot. You heard Emily Thorne prepare to get sucked in into another twisted revenge storyline. Since we're talking about reboots, let's talk about this new Gossip Girl one, huh? For all you Upper East Siders, we have the scoop on what you can expect from the HBO Max series, and it's a bit different than what you imagined. Honestly, the only thing that's staying similar to the original is that Kristen Bell will return as the voice of Gossip Girl. Joshua Safran, the producer and writer behind the reboot, told VultureFest that the show will have representation across the board, which he believes was lacking in the original. Um... Quote, even when I went to private school in New York in the 90s, the school didn't necessarily reflect what was on Gossip Girl. So this time around, the leads are non-white. There's a lot of queer content on this show. It is very much dealing with the way the world looks now, where wealth and privilege come from, and how you handle that. The thing I can't say is there is a twist, and all of that relates to the twist. But what's the twist? That's one secret he'll never tell. The interesting thing about this new version of the series is that it has a much larger social play. 
Back then, it was all about blogs, and yeah, cell phones existed, but social media wasn't as prevalent as it is now, where our whole lives are in this little cell phone, and our worth is measured in Instagram followers and likes. Uh, Until they get rid of the likes, but you know, whatever. Uh, Saffron says that he'll be exploring all of that. Um, Quote, I'm just also interested in high school juniors having a million Twitter and Instagram followers. You know, what is that like? Which was not at all possible the first time around. I just feel like there's so much to look at. I know, I know you're all wondering if any of the OG cast members will be returning since the series is set in the same world and the same school. And to that, I tell you, never say never. I mean, the door is open, uh, Schwartz said. We reached out to everybody's reps and let them know about the show. And obviously, we love working with that cast. So the ball is in their court if they want to reprise their iconic characters. And for our sake, I truly hope we get a glimpse to the scandalous lives of Manhattan's Blair Waldorf and Serena Vanderwoodson. For now, no premiere date has been set yet. And speaking of capitalizing on nostalgia and bringing back beloved characters, Kai is making a guest appearance on Legacies in 2020. Yes, the fan-favorite villain will reprise his role in the latter half of the season on episode 12, which is airing in sometime in February. Uh, Kai's return has been teased numerous times on the series, even recently when Lizzie and Josie found the Ascendant and learned that they had an evil uncle who was permanently banished and imprisoned in the newly created prison world by both of them and Bonnie. So... Why would Kai be coming back, you ask? Well, probably to give them some insight on the Gemini merge, or better yet, how to defeat it. It has to be pretty extreme for Rick to allow the man that killed his wife and the twins' mother um, to come back. And look, I know Kai was a complete murderer, he was a complete monster, but he was also likable and hilarious at the same time. So I cannot wait for Chris Woods to bring back that crazed energy to Legacies. It's official, you guys. HBO Max is working on a Friends reunion. Per The Hollywood Reporter, all of the Friends cast is down to reunite for an unscripted special. However, the deal is far from complete, so don't get excited to visit Central Perk just yet. If you haven't watched Netflix Dead to Me yet, you may want to get on that because season two has already begun filming. But the filming may have ruined that deadly cliffhanger at the end of the first season. If you didn't watch, cover your ears. Okay, Christina Applegate was spotted filming scenes with Judy's ex-husband, who looks very much alive and not dead at all by a gunshot in the pool. Is Steve alive? Is this a flashback? I mean, it seemed pretty evident that Jen killed him, which would have made for good revenge on Judy, who killed her husband accidentally. But I can't say Steve didn't have it coming. I mean, we'll see if he's alive or not. Um, For now, there has been no premiere date announced, and maybe that's for the best. We have to get through you first, remember? Netflix's Stranger Things hasn't even begun filming yet, but that isn't stopping the streaming service from giving us a much-needed scoop about the fourth and probably final season. The Netflix UK and Ireland Twitter account revealed that the title of the fourth season's first episode is going to be The Hellfire Club, 
which doesn't really give us much about what we can expect. For now, all we really know is that the storyline is being taken outside of Hawkins, Indiana, as the teaser's slogan reads, quote-unquote, we're not in Hawkins anymore. Could the Hellfire Club be some kind of club that Eleven will created after moving away? Again, we'll have to see. Riverdale is bringing more of Archie's family to town to fill a huge void left by Archie's father, Fred Andrews. Um, following the passing of Luke Perry, the series has cast Ryan Robbins as Andrews's brother, Frank. Frank is described as a former high school football star that's tough, charming, and brash, and a blue-collar worker who lived life in the shadow of his beloved older brother. The younger Andrews left Riverdale to join the army in hopes of building a life separate from his brother, and after completing three tours, has a bad temper and some bad vices. He's haunted by what's what he's seen, and also his brother's death. I was going to say that Archie might need a male role model in his life now, but I don't think that this is going to help Archie, who has taken up a role as the town's crime-fighting vigilante. Fred was Archie's moral compass, but Frank might be the one who encourages Archie's bad behavior. And Archie will cling to him because he will want to give him that sense of security. I mean, that's just who Archie is. If you ask me, this is the last thing Riverdale needs right now. All right, and now we're getting into TV reviews of shows this past week. So if you haven't uh, caught up on shows, uh, we're ringing the spoiler alert. All right, let's start with The Resident. Uh, you'd think a hospital would be better prepared to handle Nurse Day, but instead it was just a sad reality of how understaffed hospitals are when it comes to the most important people working there. Let's start with the major cliffhanger of the episode, Jessica's accident, since it was a direct result of the understaffing issue. The, the nurses are forced to work back-to-back-to-back -back shifts, and this was bound to happen sooner or later. Considering how lovey-dovey she and Irving were just before, and how lucky he felt he was to be with her, it was obvious something was going to go very wrong. I'm pulling for our girl Jessica because Chastain cannot afford to lose another co-worker. Um, while attempting to find out any information about the hemoplatin, Conrad reunited with his father Marshall, who he found out was on the drug to combat anemia. Marshall's lungs were thankfully all good, and he did offer a workaround to hacking those patient files at Chastain. The father-son duo took a private jet to D.C. for a conference where the over-the-top CEO agreed to give them a look inside their data in exchange for Chastain's um, agreement to carry products at their hospital. That's the world of corporate healthcare, folks, an eye for an eye. Uh, will they make the deal? Is it worth it if it can save patients? I mean, I think it is, right? Speaking of business and money, Kane won a premium paying patient in a game of poker and decided to go through with performing a risky, never-been-done-before procedure to essentially give that patient a bionic spine. Kate clashed with Kane once again, but he won this fight. That is, until his surgery almost killed the patient, who began choking as a result of a defective disc that was inserted into the spine. 
Um, after Kit saved the patient, she admitted that Belle was right. She would lose if she tried to go against Kane because his pull was so strong at Red Rock Medical. But Kit isn't a quitter. Instead, she found a workaround that involved her striking up a deal with Kane to open a joint neuro, ortho, and physical therapy venture. Kane was beyond eager to put aside his differences, but Kit has a larger play in motion. What does she have up her sleeve? Does she want to catch him red-handed? Does she want to just keep an eye on him and keep him close? We'll see. AJ Austin's story took place outside of the hospital walls for once, but it made me realize that he's one of the strongest and most developed characters in the series. He took his mother's advice and agreed to meet his birth mother, Bonnie, who is a successful pediatrician. It all makes sense, doesn't it? AJ wasted no time getting uh, the backstory from his parents, who you know revealed that they gave him up for a closed adoption when they were 22. Uh, Bonnie had just met AJ's dad, and she wasn't really ready to become a mom and put her medical aspirations on hold. If anyone can appreciate that, it's the raptor. But the decision wasn't senseless. It was done with his best interest at heart, and not a day goes by where she hasn't thought of him. She even helped AJ and Mina diagnose a young patient at the clinic who ended up having Lyme disease. Look, I'm sure AJ's adoptive mother is great, but it's nice for AJ to see where he comes from and who his parents really are. So if there's a Thanksgiving episode, I really do hope that we get invited to this dinner. Everyone fought to get their power back on this week's episode of Riverdale titled Hereditary, but not everyone was successful. Actually, most of them weren't. Archie made a deal with the devil again. It's like he can't learn his lesson that working with Hiram Lodge only leads to more trouble. Hiram never does anything out of the kindness of his heart, and Archie will now owe him again. Though it was really satisfying to see Dodger all messed up like that. Veronica was also having Hiram Lodge problems, but in her case, her dad manipulated her mother again. Poor Hermione has no backbone and keeps going back to Hiram because she doesn't want to work a real job. After all the crap that Hiram pulled and how he tried to destroy her and make her rot in prison, all it took was a graze on the shoulder and a whisper in her ear to convince Hermione to take him back. She not only took him back, but she agreed to renew her vowels almost immediately. If I knew Hiram at all, I'm going to say he's plotting something where he either needs Hermione to support him or to be a scapegoat. Either way, she doesn't deserve Veronica's mercy anymore. It almost seemed like Hermione was drugged into being obedient when Veronica did confront her. Hermosa can't be trusted either, but I haven't figured her out yet. Um, what is her gameplay? What's her point of being in Riverdale? I don't know. Charles really did a number on Betty, and she fell for it. In an attempt to prove that Charles was a serial killer, Betty reached out to Chick, who told her a disturbing story about how her brother murdered a guy. When she confronted Charles about it, though, he agreed to take a lie detector test, as if an FBI agent didn't know how to rig one. He then told Betty that contacting Chick made him report the murder of Shady Man, and to help the family, he and FP went and moved the body. Betty was all like, you're family now, Charles, which is exactly what he wanted. And then it was revealed he's still madly in love with Chick, and they've got something planned for the whole family. <sighs> I'm so over these psychotic brothers, but I also need to know what they're up to. Because um, then we can finally just put this like Charles storyline behind us.
Then there's poor Jughead. Whatever is happening within the confines of Stonewall Prep is 10 times more insane than whatever ever happened in Riverdale. Jughead completed an analysis of the Baxter Brothers text, which is honestly why we love him. And he realized that the first book had a significantly different tone than the remaining five. Therefore, he doubted that Mr. DuPont was the ghostwriter for all of them. Needing more proof, uh, before he made his findings public, Jughead did some digging and found a very similar story in a Riverdale newsletter written by Frosty Pajamas, his grandfather's pen name. A few years before, he transferred to Stonewall Prep. The findings were impressive and proved that Jughead was superior to everyone else in the class. However, Mr. DuPont was not having any of it and threatened Jughead if he ever told anyone which definitely proved that he had something to hide, like the fact that he's not the actual freaking ghostwriter of the first book. Jughead took up his concerns with Mr. Chipping, who agreed that the situation needed to be remedied. And then, the wildest thing to ever happen on Riverdale happened. And yes, I do remember that Edgar Evernever wore an evil Knievel suit and attempted to escape on a self-built, like, helicopter. But this is even crazier. Mr. Chipping walked into class normal as can be, took a deep breath, told Jughead he tried to help, and then jumped out of a freaking window. Just like that. And what's worse is that no one in the class even flinched. Brett later made a comment about Mr. Chipping's fall from grace, as if everyone was in on something except for Jughead. So... Either Jughead fakes his death for the perfect murder story that he's writing, or he meets a fate similar to Chipping's since everyone at the school has it out for him. Then Cheryl and Tony killed a man. The man was her Uncle Bedford after he found Cheryl hiding Jason's corpse in the basement. I don't know where this storyline is going, but someone sane needs to snap Cheryl out of this because it clearly isn't going to be Tony. Rebecca's health is beginning to deteriorate on This Is Us. We're getting ready to explore the early stages of Rebecca's Alzheimer's, which will eventually lead us to that moment in the future where the family gathered around her bedside. Just thinking about how This Is Us is going to tackle the storyline and how they're going to handle it makes me super emotional. Randall spent the day with his mom for a little bit of R&R, which was Randall and Rebecca time, but things were much different than they used to be. Rebecca wasn't acting like herself, and she was forgetful. The fact that she lost her iPhone before meant that this wasn't the first time something um, with her mem memory failed. Randall picked up on it right away, but when he confronted Rebecca, she was defensive and irritable. Refusing to get help is going to lead to Rebecca getting lost on the fall finale. The R&R of the present day paralleled that of Rebecca and Randall's day together when the big three were already in college. Randall was still taking care of his mother then and promised to help her find a job. When he realized she didn't land the job interview due to lack of experience, he vouched for her to the boss who took him up on the idea and just gave her a chance. Randall has always been the son who connected so easily with his mother. There was a brief nod to Kate's relationship with the older record store guy that no one liked, but we've yet to explore the toxic nature of their relationship that was teased. Um, in the present day, Kate struggled with a, uh, Toby's decision to put his gym time before the family and then felt guilty about allowing Jack to eat his first solid food when Toby wasn't around. Their relationship has been filled with lies for a while now, and though the truth eventually comes out, it would have just been easier without the lie in the first place. 
Um, Will this be what drives them apart? Or will they overcome all of this and emerge stronger than ever? Nikki's trial proved successful and showed that Kevin's presence in his life really made a difference on his uncle. The moments where Kevin kept seeing his father talking to him instead of his uncle were, were really just emotional and raw. When the judge asked Nikki if he regretted throwing a chair through the veteran's building, Nikki replied, not really. And that was classic and brutally honest. And it was also beautiful. Nikki wasn't sorry because that was the moment that not only made him sober, but also got his life on track and brought him closer to his nephew, Kevin. In the process, he learned to forgive himself. Is it strange that I'm really digging the Kevin, Cassidy, and Nikki trio and I don't want things to change between them? I don't think Cassidy is going to go back to her husband. They did have something special once before, but it's over and he's moved on and there's just too much toxicity between them. And I just want to believe that she is the woman that Kevin is with in the future. The fall finale is coming up and it's teasing an explosive Thanksgiving. Nikki is coming. Deja's mom, Shauna, is coming. And honestly, they should probably just invite Malik and his parents at this point. And all of these people together, plus Rebecca's Alzheimer's kicking in, is going to make for one dramatic holiday event. Emergence skipped a week, so I'll talk about the previous episode so that we're all ready for the insanity that was teased on the upcoming episode this week. Um, you guys, about halfway through the episode, I figured out that Emily was the real mastermind behind Piper, and I was so happy to be proven right. It was actually Wilkins' statement that Kindred wasn't smart enough to recreate Piper that solidified it for me. The way he said it was subtle, but you could tell there was a lot he was holding back. It also explains how Kindred and his people have all have been ahead of Joe and Benny at every step. They had someone on the inside. The big bad isn't Kindred. It's Emily. She sat there pretending to be an innocent victim that needed protection from Kindred, just so she could figure out how much Joe and Benny knew and what their plans were. She laid the trap for them to capture Kindred to eliminate him, creating a false sense of security for Joe. And now she has uncontrolled access to Piper. Joe and Benny became so preoccupied with Kindred, they never stopped to ask themselves how Emily knew so much and how she was able to get them the cure. They've been played. But what Emily, like what is her end goal? She's not trying to get Piper back. She wanted her alive and she teased that now they get to have the real fun. Is she hoping to see how far Piper can be pushed? How much she can evolve? Was the plan always to have her find a home at Joe's place? There was also something else that Alan Wilkins said that resonated more with me than it did with Joe, though it probably should have. He told Joe to destroy Piper because as much as you want to believe that she's human, and as much as she exhibits human behaviors, she's an android and thus dangerous. The empathy, the smarts, it's all her way of evolving past the point of their control. Joe has no idea how to control Piper now, let alone when she does evolve and level up again. All of this doesn't bode well for Joe and her family, which is already fractured now that Alex has found out that Piper has superpowers. And really, his reaction is legit. And I'm glad Joe didn't fight him on it. No one can guarantee that Mia won't get hurt at the expense of Piper. Which means that Mia has to be taken out of the equation. I'm glad at least Alex is thinking clearly, though we have no reason to distrust Piper yet, and she didn't intentionally harm Mia. There's just no reason to tempt fate. 
Um, of course, losing Mia could be the trigger that breaks Piper, especially with Emily in her ear. Piper was distraught when her quote-unquote sister was taken, and who knows how she'll react or who she'll blame. Will it be Joe? Will it be Alex? Will she want revenge? There has been plenty of twists and oh my god moments that have kept me and, you know, the rest of the audience invested. But at the end of the day, we're still... We still don't understand the bigger picture. Why did Emily recreate Piper? What is her purpose? Her intention? Is it evil or is it to help the world? In the trailer for this upcoming week, Emily's goals seem to be revealed slightly. Um, she wants to be Piper's mommy. She's been communicating with her in that void or whatever it is, um, which means she's been attempting to establish control. When she tells Piper that Benny is hurting her, her hope is that Piper will, re will react and hurt Benny. It also explains why Piper just got so close to Joe. She wants to know why Piper is so drawn to Joe and her family. Emily may have been the one to create her, but we'll see if Piper's love for Joe wins over. After all, she did deny Emily when she suggested she's her mother, saying, No, you're not. Piper, don't let him get to you, AI girl. Don't. This wasn't my favorite episode of God Friended Me, and I thought what was happening with the main characters was much more interesting than the friend suggestion of the week, which focused on the Patel brothers and a million-dollar lottery ticket. Um, this plotline has been rather controversial in the God Friended Me fan community, as some people think that letting the million dollars slip away was fine because the show is always about the greater lesson and an intrinsic motivation, while others, like myself, were frustrated by the decision. And look, I'm sticking by my theory that it wasn't necessary to let all that money go unclaimed. I understand the lesson that money doesn't buy happiness and doesn't fix problems, and I wholeheartedly support it and agree with it. And I also believe in karma. But there was nothing written in stone um, that Samir's karma would be restored only if he signed the check over to someone else. Why couldn't you just cash the check before the deadline and hang on to the money until he found the rightful owner? It seemed rather foolish not to put all that money to good use. I mean, worst case, he could have donated it to a shelter if he didn't find the person that it belonged to. He could have given it to a cause that was worthy to him, a church, a food pantry, whatever it may be. And then the best case is that he would have eventually found the owner like they did with Judy, who I'm pretty sure would have been grateful to have all that money after suffering a brain aneurysm. Life in New York is expensive and health insurance is not going to cover everything usually. And if they hadn't waited to the last minute, there's a chance Judy would have been at the law firm when she had the aneurysm, and they could have found her sooner. If the series is supposed to be rooted in realism, you know, God account aside, um, then it only makes sense that it follows some kind of logic. Kara and Miles also don't seem like the kind of people who would just walk away from a million dollars without seeing the good that it could do to someone that truly needs it. Um, so that decision didn't seem very in character either. As for Judy's aneurysm, there was absolutely no way that she would have gotten out of the hospital and been on her merry way that quickly. This had to be the most unbelievable part of the episode, and it just really made me wonder like, where the writers were at with this, if they've ever had anyone that experienced a brain aneurysm. Um, it just it wasn't logical. 
I'm grateful that Allie is finding purpose and getting her own storyline. After realizing her career path may long, no longer be bringing her joy, she found solace in her LGBTQ church, and most importantly, in a role that she watched her father you know, growing up. It's kind of a, fir- a full circle moment. Kara finally told Miles that she loved him, and the callback to Paris was another full circle moment. They really are the sweetest couple, and they know how to balance work with their personal life. Rakesh's relationship with Jaya is encroaching into the danger zone. No one ever believed that the fake relationship would work. Well, at least I didn't. But now that Jaya is going on dinner dates with men set up by her parents, it's getting even more worrisome. She told Rakesh not to worry, but how could he not? This is a woman who could not respectfully stand up to her parents and is living a lie that isn't authentic, um, and it's making them unhappy. And she's risking her relationship for it. If this is how Jaya is going to handle her parents, Rakesh needs to move on. You know, at some point, you have to put your significant other first. And I know her parents mean well. Um, and it's, you know, how they grew up and tradition, but she's not being honest about what she wants and what's important to her. And she's definitely not putting her partner first. Arthur spent most of the episode in denial, but seeing his daughter so proactive about figuring out, um, what she wants to do inspired him to face his problems with Trish head on. Calling her is one thing though, but will he be willing to sacrifice his role within the church to be with her? Is he going to take love over faith or is he just gonna go on with his role and if that means he loses trish that's so be it batwoman fell into a bit of a lull which made it uh the least interesting episode so far batwoman is finding it hard to keep her identity a secret on i'll be judge i'll be jury two characters found out her secret and it was a close call for two others Sophie had her inklings from the get-go, but now she knows for certain that Kate's the caped crusader. Drunk Mary was a hit last week, but Protective Mary is here to steal that spotlight. If you need anyone to have your back without question, Mary is your girl. But she was close, so close to finding out the truth, which leaves me slightly surprised that someone with her intelligence level hasn't pieced it all together yet. Mouse also figured out Kate's secret identity after using his imitations to fool Alice of all people. He called her out for being soft, and judging by her look, she was shocked he picked up on it. She then defended her plans for Kate by insisting she wanted her to join their family. I'm not sure if I believe that. I mean, Alice has loyalty to Mouse, but if he gets in her way, I think she would outmaneuver him. Having the only weapon that can penetrate the Batsuit either means that Alice doesn't want it to fall into the hands of anyone else, or she has it out for her sister. Kate's back and forth with her father about Alice and how they all let her down was kind of a snooze fest. We get it. You guys blame yourselves. And while the guilt is going to keep eating away at them every time Alice makes a move on Gotham, they need to let it go. Both of them have searched for Alice until they were convinced either because they truly believed it or they wanted so badly to believe it that she was dead. It's an impossible situation, but pointing fingers will not change the past, nor will it bring her back. Well, at least her mentality. The commander and Batwoman squared off as she tried to bring justice to the real villain of the week, the Executioner. The crows captured the wrong guy, and they were fine with putting the blame on an innocent man, just like all those other corrupt law enforcement officials at Blackgate. Supergirl took us on a trip to the past to give us the origin story of Lena and Andrea Rojas' friendship. Maybe this came as a shock to you, 
but the two of them used to be friends before their friendship took a nasty turn, much like Lena and Kara's, which explains why Lena has a no-tolerance approach for betrayal. But now Andrea, who has been revealed to have ties to Leviathan, needs help that only Lena can give her. We learned a lot throughout the course of this episode that will shape episodes moving forward. Andrea's superpower is the shadow, granted to her by the medallion she found during her Dora the Explorer Indiana Jones trip that she took with Lena. Lena originally wanted to get her hands on the medallion to help stop her brother, Lex Luthor. But when Andrea fell into the ditch, she was approached by a messenger for Leviathan, who gave her no choice. Either she took the medallion and promised to fulfill her role when the time came, or her father committed suicide. She never told Lena, but one day Lena found out, um, and she wasn't happy that she was betrayed or that Andrea was the reason she couldn't stop her maniacal brother, Lex, from his crusade against Superman and then Supergirl. Andrea's involvement with Leviathan is responsible for Russ's transformation into Riproar. The two of them were in love, but when he found her medallion, Leviathan threatened to kill him. That's when she offered him up, and he turned into this bionic killing machine. When she told Lena the truth, Lena agreed to help her intercept the DEO and steal Riproar back from his captivity. But in return, she asked for the medallion, which had been stripped of all its powers by then. Andrea warned her that it was a curse, and Lena should have been thankful to have avoided it. But instead, she was upset and ungrateful. Andrea tried to escape with Russ, but Leviathan found her and shot him right in the heart. She can't escape her promise to them or the darkness growing inside of her, they said. Well, this isn't what I expected from Andrea, but it doesn't sound like things are going to go well for her. Um, Horseshoe Bay's Velvet Mask party was very, very illuminating when it came down to revealing what happened to poor Lucy Sable on Nancy Drew. Nancy managed to work her way into the party alongside Ryan Hudson in exchange for stealing some very expensive coins belonging to his family. His goal was to sell them off in the auction so he could have some money to his name now that his father had cut him off. Nancy and Ryan weren't the most obvious pairing, but they did work, and they worked well together. Um, Nancy has this way of bringing out the best in people, even people like Ryan. Um, When Ryan realized that he was making out with Luce's ghost, he had no choice but to come clean to Nancy. I mean, you don't call someone Luce if you didn't have any personal involvement with them aside from a summer fling. Ryan and Lucy were in love, and when she witnessed Ryan's mother having an affair with Owen Marvin's uncle, she was shunned by the family and died shortly after. So yeah, translated, that sounds like Ryan's mother is definitely responsible for her death. Nancy uh, didn't just gather her intel and wait on using it. She flat out confronted Ryan's mom. So now she probably is a target from the like a target to the Hudson family also. And those coins Ryan was selling, well, they should have been in the bottom of the ocean in a ship that belonged to both families, and that sank with a crew on board, including Uncle Sebastian. So yeah, again, this translates to Ryan's family being responsible not only for killing Lucy Sable but for also killing Uncle Sebastian. But Nancy's father isn't all that innocent either. He was apparently the right-hand man for the Hudsons at the time and could have been the one to actually carry out Lucy's death, which would explain why her bloody dress was in Nancy's house and why she's been haunting them. It's interesting that both Tiffany and Lucy have this one connection to Ryan, um, and I wonder if there's a deeper meaning to that. Uh, I guess we have to wait and find out. I don't trust Beth's, uh, Bess's date, Elizabeth. 
Because she works for the Hudsons, she honestly could be lying to Bess and trying to get to date her romantically to find out what Bess knows. I mean, Bess was at the diner when Tiffany died. Um, And Nancy turned down Owen by telling him her heart belonged to someone else. But her body language and general flirtatious mannerisms, you know, indicate otherwise. I can understand why Nick's jealous. And I really think that we're going to explore some kind of love triangle here with Nancy, Nick, and Owen. Liam's memories are back on Dynasty. Finally. Liam's had a tough road following his amnesia caused by the wicked Adam, but he's all better now and Fallon jumped right into his arms. The romantic gesture which really mimicked their divorce party. When Liam was there making bold statements about his feelings for Fallon and she was completely smitten. So smitten that she completely forgot she was at her own media company this time around, um, her own media company's launch party with Evan Tate. I mean, we all knew Evan was a rebound, but I don't think Evan knew that. Evan seemed way into Fallon more than she was into him, and despite telling her that it's fine that she went back to Liam because they're soulmates, Evan has some deeply rooted anger issues. What was the deal with stealing her hair off the brush? Is he going to use her DNA to frame her for something? Was this his plan all along just to, you know, make Fallon pay for hurting his sister? Yeah, Fallon should have known better than to get in bed with a man who had it out for her. Evan went from vengeful to in love within a matter of seconds, and it was highly suspicious. Also topping the list of suspicious is Nadia, Adam's caretaker. She crossed so many lines from breaking into Blake's office to spying on Fallon and meddling with her life to making out with her own patient. I can't wait to find out what Nadia's motivations are because she clearly feels like she connects with Adam on some twisted level and wants to help him destroy the Carringtons, namely Crystal and Fallon. Considering she came um, to the manor as Crystal's recommendation, maybe there's some past history with these with these two that we're just not knowing yet, and maybe Crystal just doesn't remember. Um, Adam was terrible before, but now that he has an accomplice, he's like a whole new level of deranged. Kirby is a lost soul, and she's being taken adva- advantage of by that self-help speaker, Joel. At least that's kind of what it seems like. I wish Sammy would have stepped in and stopped her from going off on some isolated retreat with a man that she just met, because that doesn't scream like good idea. Uh, Joel preyed on Kirby's weaknesses and her need to fit in somewhere, and I really just hope that she gets out of this situation relatively unscathed. Uh, Dominique proved that she's on her way to becoming the evil stepmother as she tried to control Vanessa's life, like every aspect of it. One minute she was uh, supporting her relationship with Colhane just to get that free publicity, and then the next she wanted to end it because she felt like it was distracting Vanessa from her goals. But where Dominique really messed up is threatening Colhane and giving away too many personal details about her life and about her life with Vanessa, um, which allowed him to put two and two together and realize that Dominique's connection to Vanessa is that they're related. Um... Now he has the upper hand here, so if Dominique wants to keep her secret from Monica and Jeff, she's going to have to play by Colhane's rules, which also works in Vanessa's favor. But man, I really thought Colhane learned his lesson about dating women with messy family drama. It's just never worth it. A Berzik baby is happening, you guys. While I'm not a fan of intelligence couples, I'm like, if we're going to have to deal with them, they may as well throw in a pregnancy storyline. 
Burgess was shocked to learn that she's with child, and for good reason. She was at the ER to patch up a cut on her arm. It's not exactly what you'd expect to hear. But hooking up with Ruzek did have its consequences. She didn't waste time telling him the news, which I find was kind of surprising. I thought she'd at least keep it to herself for a few episodes, but looping him in so quickly means that she trusts him. Burgess's immediate reaction was that she wanted a baby, but not right now. And that's fair. We've seen her prioritize her career countless times. It's why her relationship with Ruzek never took on another life. They've both been working towards this one career goal. But the case of the week involving two kidnapped girls, one of whom Burgess found dead in a bush, convinced Burgess that maybe this unexpected situation is a blessing. The woman they found in the kidnapper's home had a baby with him. She was so concerned about her child, which launched a full-on rescue mission. After all the terrible things that she'd been through, namely kidnapping and what seems like rape, she said that she still said that the baby was the best thing that ever happened to her. When Burgess witnessed the intensity of a mother's love, she changed her mind. You know, sometimes the best things in life are unplanned. And who knows, if she'll get another chance like this, you know, if she continues to invest all her time in a job. So she canceled the abortion appointment. Ruzek proved that he is ready for this big change in his life by supporting Burgess's decision either way that it went. He was down to take her to the appointment, and when she changed her mind, he was ready to become a father, even assuring her that everything would be okay. Maybe having a baby is the push that these two need to just reignite their relationship permanently. They've been hooking up on and off, but they haven't attempted to make things work again following that broken engagement. And for the writers who seem so hellbent on making Halstead and Upton happen, this is their chance. Um, the fall finale airs this upcoming Wednesday, and the teaser shows Halstead getting into a bit of a pinch when he gets beat up and kidnapped as a result of a quote-unquote secret ongoing relationship with a woman connected to another case. My guess is the team will find him just in time, and Upton will be there to help Halstead heal thus bringing them closer together. You heard it here first. Um, hopefully there's at least some follow-up to the Burzik baby storyline, because Chicago PD is relentless at not connecting episodes to each other, and a baby arc probably needs to be the string connecting all of them from now on. Chicago Med has taken on a rather depressing tone as of late. Um, Charles's wife Cece and Maggie are both dealing with the C-word, cancer, um, which is just terrible and heartbreaking. But now Maggie's new cancer friend, Ben, only has a few days to live. We knew from the moment Maggie met Ben that he wasn't going to survive. It's just the unspoken rule of television. But they could have given her at least a few episodes with him before ripping the rug out from under them. The worst part is that Ben isn't even succumbing to his cancer. He got measles, which turned into pneumonia. How unfortunate. Watching Maggie desperately try to honor his last wishes was heartbreaking. On one hand, you can call her selfish for forging Nat's signature and trying to bring him back home. The old Maggie would have never made such a careless decision and put the public at risk. But on the other hand, how can we sit here and criticize a woman who is not only going through her own hardships, but is now having to lose a person she cared about? Maggie has always been in control, but right now she's helpless. Sadly, these... There doesn't seem to be a happy ending in her sight anytime soon. 
Dr. Toy is suspicious of Crockett, which is odd because there hasn't been much between April and Crockett that should have, you know, set off any signs or warnings. However, this show thrives on drama, so Choi will likely confront April about it, which will lead to her confessing that something almost happened between her and Crockett, and it'll send their relationship in for a loop. I hadn't jumped on Team Crockett until this episode. He not only proved that this, like, his gut instincts about when to jump in and save a life were right, but he also respected Noah's wishes to, you know, keep his secret until he was forced to tell the police. Sure, Noah made a mistake, and it's one he paid dearly for. Based on his conversation with Crockett in the beginning, it's been a few weeks since uh, Jacinta was admitted into the ER. They likely thought things had died down and her gang forgot about her, but they caught her exiting med. Um, It's unclear if there's going to be a follow-up to the story, but I feel like they can't just leave us wondering what happened. Did Jacinta return to the gang? Did they kidnap her? Will intelligence find her? Does no one need to move on? Does he need to move? I mean, if she was taken back by her gang, they probably know where he lives now, so that's not safe. I do think this would make a really good crossover episode, or at least like a like an episode that starts on med and finishes on Chicago PD. Um, and most exciting of all is that Natalie's memory is returning. And not only is she remembering what happened that night um, of the accident, but she's remembering what happened when she went to talk to Will. And you'd think this would be exciting news, except that, of course, Will now has some mystery uh, girlfriend, blonde paramedic that he's seeing. Um, Will Natalie's memory change things for Will and his new squeeze? Or should it? Like, should Natalie and Will give things another try? Um, And how is this going to affect poor Elsa, who has developed such a cute and innocent little crush on Dr. Halstead? The only thing missing from this week's episode of Legacies was a flash dance sequence. Legacies took it all the way back to the 80s, both in Malivore and in Mystic Falls, and it made for one of the best episodes ever. The writers of this series have tapped into something so unique and organic. There's no rule book, and based on how the series is structured with, you know, a new monster every week, they can do whatever they damn well please. For example, they can put a minotaur into a prison world that's a labyrinth and mimics Mystic Falls where the only way out is to trade spaces with the Keeper. Oh, and the prison world is based on an 80s video game that Hope and Lizzie have to navigate if they want to survive. Oh, and somehow all of this tallies up to a poignant point about screwing the patriarchy and female empowerment. And with all that in mind, it was still a cohesive, sensical, and fun episode chock full of badass Hope and Lizzie moments, nostalgia, romance, bad decisions, and oh my god, worthy reveals. Bless these writers. It was such a monumental episode for Lizzie. Not only is she the only one who remembers hope, but she tried so hard to be better and it came so naturally to her this week. She's a good person despite her flaws and needs to give herself more credit. Lizzie might as well have put on a cape and called herself Mystic Falls' newest superhero. Her friendship with hope was always interesting, but it's taken on this new dynamic since they're literally the only two people who have any recollection of what happened. Isn't it crazy how sometimes you'd not realize how blessed you are until you lose and regain something? Lizzie hated Hope for so long, but without her, she realized just how much she liked and needed her. The two survived the video game by killing the Minotaur, something I guess no other woman in the history of the prison world's tenure ever thought to do. Strange. Strange. 
Back in Mystic Falls, the 80s dance didn't go as planned for Josie and Landon, simply because Josie found his journal of hope musings right before they had sex. Awkward. But also, life's way of telling them this wasn't the right thing to do. It's better this way rather than hope interrupting and, you know, telling them that she's uh, Landon's girl, because whatever she would have said at that point would have just sounded like a lie. It was big of her to let Landon walk away and be happy, but the fact that she thinks there may be more than one path or destiny sounds like the writer's way of getting a hope and rough relationship going to add to the complexity of this love triangle turned rectangle. Josie figured out that something is amiss with Hope, and that's been a hunch that she's had since Hope first appeared in Mystic Falls. And next week, she's on a mission to figure out exactly what it is. Which brings guest star Riley Vocal into the mix, um, returning as Aunt Freya. And sadly, she doesn't remember Hope either. I wonder what she thinks happened to Haley and Klaus's child, or why half of her family is dead, since it all revolved around Hope. If Legacies keeps delivering episodes like this one, it's only going to cement its legacy as one of the more unique shows in the trilogy. And finally, The Good Place. How are they going to get out of this forking mess? I mean, really, they saved humanity, and for a moment, there was celebration. And then, the judge decided that, since the point system was flawed, it meant she had to destroy all humans and start over from scratch. That's a very extreme decision. And one I don't think Chidi is going to react to very well. I mean, he has trouble making decisions as it is, when there's no outside pressure. How is he supposed to save the whole world with, you know, limited time on the clock? But Eleanor is right. If they even stand a, uh, a chance, a sliver of a chance, they need to wake him up. He spent his whole life studying ethics and trying to figure out ways to make people better. The fact that Bad Janet was the one to steal the judge's delete the world button was surprising and it wasn't. I mean, when she was being held captive, we kind of saw her listening to Michael's stories and seeing that maybe she's on the wrong side. But, you know, after all, she was on the, you know, bad team. So it was it was kind of shocking. But after Michael handed her that manifesto, Bad Janet read it on the toilet. Important to note that she doesn't have to poop, she just chooses to. And that's what really convinced her to swap sides. And honestly, this is a feat that I think is stronger than anything that they could have accomplished during their whole experiment. I mean, sure, turning Brett was difficult because he was a complete ashole. But Bad Janet was a whole other level of bad. So if she could be turned and convinced to become a better person or android or whatever she is, then anyone can be. It's telling that Bad Janet also took the Earth Rebooter thingy. I mean, she could have just agreed with them, but not given any care to what happens to humanity, but she did care because she even admitted that humans suck, but it's not their fault. Wasn't that enough to convince the judge? And now look, I don't know what the answer is, but I hope Chidi does for all of our sakes. I mean, the fate of the world is in his little indecisive hands. No pressure. Maybe demons will agree to revamp the point system in a better way. Maybe there's going to be some kind of test you have to pass if you want to get into the good place. I, I don't really know. But this just added a whole new layer of awesome to the good place, proving that they never run out of ways to set up 
and up the ante. They'll keep us surprised until the very last moment. And that's it. That's all the TV news and review um, discussions, dissection, whatever you want to call it. Um, That's all I have for this week. Um, There's a lot of, like I said, fall finales coming up in the upcoming week. So that's going to be fun. Just make sure you catch up on all your shows. And um, if you want to read more of my musings in detail, you can find them at craveutv.com and tvfanatic.com. And that's it. Until next time, guys. Cheers.